Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I am the Youth Director here at SFBC. This week, Pastor Rod Happel shares the next message in our series going through the Gospel of John. Enjoy! Have you ever heard the phrase or the saying, if it's too good to be true, it probably is, right? Well, a few years ago, I had a friend who was trying to convince me to invest my money into this amazing plan where you would get 30% return on your money at the end of the year. Yeah, 30%, right? 10% six months in, another 20% at the end of the year. 30%. Where else could you do that? He was really pushing hard. So I took the information, I gave it to my financial planner. He looked it over and he said, I can't quite put my finger on it. The guy trades stocks, options on stocks. I didn't even know what options on stocks were. At any rate, this is how he was making his money. He says, I can't put my finger on it, but let me tell you two things. One, buyer beware. Two, if it sounds too good to be true, it usually is. That's what he said. Well, I'm glad that I listened to my financial advisor because less than a year later, that stock options trader landed himself in prison for a fraudulent practice. Now, the Apostle John has been recording for us a number of stories of encounters between people and Jesus, and he's picking up on the words of Jesus, right? And he's saying to these people things that they're going, that sounds too good to be true. But here's the deal. With Jesus, it is true, right? I mean, that's the difference between the world and what the world has to offer and what Jesus has to offer, because Jesus is the truth. Now, our story today comes in the middle of a section uh, found between chapter 2 and chapter 4, where chapter 2 begins with Jesus and the disciples going to Cana, to a wedding there, you might recall. And then in chapter 4, it ends with Jesus going back to Cana, where he heals a man's son. And so from Cana to Cana, we see these stories, and it's not just geographical marker points here, but it's thematic. There are stories of the newness of life that Jesus is offering to people. Uh, He does it at Cana in the sense that he is speaking of newness of life when he changes not grape juice to wine, but water to wine. I mean, who does that? It is a complete transformation of something from one thing into another. And it it pictures actually a forward, ultimate looking towards the resurrection of Jesus Christ because he will take a body and transform it completely to be a glorified body, something that is made for eternity to be with God. I see you coming, Kevin Fraser. You are very subtle and sneaky, and I thank you for that. You're a good man. The second thing he does, he goes to the temple and he clears out the temple. Right? All the money changers and people making money off of the business that shouldn't be there. And what's happening there is that Jesus is cleansing the temple. He's restoring it to newness. Then in chapter 3, last week if you were here, Pastor Tim preached on Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus kind of under the cover of darkness. And he's he's a seeker, right? And Jesus says, it must be born again. (laughs) And it was all about the newness of life. Look to Christ and live, he says. As Moses lifted up that rod in the desert, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. Look and live, right? Life, newness of life, Nicodemus. And then at the end in chapter 4, there's a man who comes to him and says, my son is sick. He's going to die. And Jesus merely speaks the words, your son will live, and his son lived. Newness of life. Right in the middle of that is a story that we're going to focus on today. And that is the story of the woman at the well. Now this is a pretty well-known story. Uh, It's about the woman who's going about her daily chores of doing what she normally does. Goes to the well, gets the water, right? But this time she encounters Jesus. And she hears things that seem too good to be true. But she's going to find out that it is true. 
This story I actually preached on <clears throat> four years ago. I went and took a look at my notes. I was like, wow, I preached the woman at the well four years ago in a summer sermon series titled, I Just Met Jesus. You all remember that, right? Please shake your head, yeah. I went and looked at my notes because I wasn't sure what I preached on. And when I read my notes, I was like, huh, I'm delighted to know that I hardly remember what I preached on, which gives me great comfort that you won't remember what I preached on. So <laughs> let's treat this as if it's a fresh topic this morning. It's a story. It's a narrative. Before I read the story, I'll take a drink because I thank you, Kevin. I don't know why, but of late I have had problems with my, uh, my voice up here. So I will have it on the screen here that you can read along with me, but feel the story. Okay, take this in. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. So picture Judea down in the south, Galilee up in the north. He's just going from the south to the north, but through the middle he has to go through Samaria. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar or Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but... Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, which by the way could be translated something like madam. It's not a, a term of disrespect, okay? It was a common way. Madam, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, or in some translations, in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, 
what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. What a great story. And for good reason, John includes this story in his purpose because he has said that he wants you to know who the Messiah is and believe in Jesus and by so doing have life. And here we see this story, knowing Jesus, trusting Jesus, having life. You could look at this as Jesus on a missions trip. It's a cross-cultural experience. He is there on mission for sure. In fact, it says that he had to go through Samaria. Um, geographically speaking, it was the shortest way to get to Galilee, but he didn't have to. He could have gone around. Many Jews chose not to go through Samaritan territory, kind of at a protest, right, to go around it. It was a long way around, but he could have gone around. Jesus had to go, though, for sure, to accomplish the will of the Father. He was on mission for what his Father wanted him to do, which was to bring the good news to the Samaritan people. When the disciples came back, um, I didn't read this part, but they offer him the food, and Jesus said, no thanks, I don't need your food. I have food to eat that you don't know about. And then he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So Jesus had to go through Samaria because he was on mission. He meets a woman, a woman at a well. Now, for those of us who've grown up in the church and read a lot of the Old Testament scriptures, this might start to like, sound familiar. A woman at a well. And for sure, John's readers would have would have identified with the Old Testament stories of a woman coming to a well and meeting a man at a well. In fact, here's three of the stories. It might be the only three, but Moses meets Zipporah at a well, and eventually they get married. Isaac meets Rebekah at a well, and eventually they get married. And then Jacob meets Rachel at a well, and eventually they get married. John has something in mind here. Um, by the way, I had in my notes here that going to the well was the original Christian mingle. That's what you did back then, okay? Just, you, know, you want to get married, just go to the well. It was such an easy system back then, hey? John seems to be setting us up with this metaphor, this idea of marriage, and that it paints a picture of a spiritual truth. Okay, first of all, he's opened this section in chapter 2 with Jesus going to a wedding. So it's already part of his readers have listened to Jesus at a wedding. Then in chapter 3, we've listened to the words of John the Baptist, who says of himself, I'm not the groom. I'm not the one. He says, I am a friend to the groom. I'm the best man of the groom. My job is to bring the bride and the groom together. I have prepared the way for the groom. I have preached to these people who will now become the bride to Jesus the groom. And now he fades out of the way. Jesus will become greater. I will become less. So John's already used this language of bride and groom. We all know from further on in Scripture, Paul's writings about what it means for us to be in relationship with God, and the idea is that Jesus is the groom, and we, the people, the church, are the bride. So this woman is at a well, and she is a woman who has husband issues at a well. She's about to get married, spiritually speaking. She's about to understand something completely new, Something that she has never been able to find this side of heaven by way of healing, by way of complete restoration, but she's about to. She's about to have Jesus touch the very pain in her life and heal her of it and give her a true marriage to God through Christ where she will worship him 
in spirit and truth. And so it's this kind of wonderful picture in the backdrop. And you know what? It's good for us to realize whether we're single or married, male or female, we are all married to Christ. We are all a bride. And that we have then, by nature of that relationship, been placed into God's family. This is a beautiful picture. So moving back into the story, let's take a look at some of the details. There's some fascinating things in this story for sure. So the, the disciples are not there. They're off getting food. And the first thing I thought was, really? There's 12 of them. None of them stay with Jesus? Um, does it take 12 people to go shopping? They're not there. Maybe that's intentional. Maybe Jesus has sent them. I don't know. But I would imagine that he knows that they're about to have an encounter. And it's going to be an encounter that would have been very difficult for the disciples themselves to actually jump over the kind of hurdles that Jesus is about to jump over. There's social hur- hurdles and racial hurdles and religious hurdles. And uh, I don't know the reason, but the disciples aren't there. Jesus is there alone. It's noon, which means what? It's the heat of the day. If you've been to Israel, you know how hot it can be. Here's the deal with the whole timing of this story taking place at the middle of the day. And I know most of us know this, but I'll just state the obvious, okay? Uh, in the morning, it was cooler temperatures. In the afternoon, were cooler temperatures. It was the regular job of most of the women to come and get the water, and it would be a social thing. In the cooler hours, you'd spend a little more time, you know, getting your water, kind of hanging out together. This woman's not coming in the cool of the day. She's coming in the middle of the day when she knows no one else is going to be there, right? Probably because we're told by the story that most likely she's avoiding the other women. She doesn't want the social interaction because she probably is looked down upon because of her marital status, right? She wants to show up to the well, get her water, and leave and not meet anyone. And there's this guy. Really? What are you doing here? (laughs) No one's ever here. How many times has she come to the well midday and never seen a soul? And now on this day, there's this guy here, and he's a man, and he's a Jewish man. What are you doing here, and why are you here now? The woman is surprised by two things. First, Jesus, being a man and being Jewish, would actually talk to her. He asks her for a drink, right? Um, She knows the great divide that is there. The rift between Jews and Samaritans was as deep as any racial rift in this world. And it was mutually felt. They hated each other equally. Okay, it wasn't just one had the upper hand. Nah, they both felt like they had the upper hand and they didn't like the other one. And so she's quite surprised that he, first of all, a man would speak to her. Secondly, a Jewish man. And he asked the question, would you give me a drink? Really? You, being a Jewish person, are going to touch your lips to my jar and I'm a Samaritan? That never happened. Not a chance, right? And so there's all these things that are going on there that just surprise her. Like, why are you talking to me? The second thing is that she's surprised that he offers her living water when you don't even have a bucket. (laughs) So how are you going to do this, right? She's surprised that he's offering him this. What is she thinking of Jesus at this point? First of all, I think she's thinking, why are you here and I wish you weren't? Secondly, you're one odd individual. Like you're out to lunch if you think you can offer me water and you don't even have a bucket, right? We have the advantage of understanding what Jesus is doing here. He's using language as a metaphor, right? He's taking the literal water and he's spiritualizing it and he's trying to help her see some spiritual truth. She takes his words literally, much like Nicodemus when Jesus said, you must be born again. And he's like, whoa, go back into my mother's womb. Nah, what? And here she is, water, well, bucket. So she's taking everything very literally. In fact, a few weeks ago, we talked about bios life and zoe life. Um, I told you that John chose to use a Greek word for the word life, and it meant spiritual life. 
So when you see that word life, he is talking about spiritual life. He's not talking about natural life. She keeps getting in her head bucket, well, water. And Jesus is trying to get into her head living water, streams of life, abundant life, this kind of idea. And she's just missing it. They're, they're on two different planes. He's leading her in a spiritual direction. He's trying to turn the conversation to help her understand spiritual truth. It's not happening. One time our family was traveling to the interior. We were halfway on the Coquihalla between Merritt and Kelowna. And the fires were raging all around. And a guy's car, his engine blew. So we picked him up. He was on the side of the road. He was just a bit older than myself. And uh, after making sure he got his car, you know, it was going to be towed away and stuff like that, we carried on and we took him to Vernon. So we had a couple hours together. And we were talking. He kept going on about insurance. He got that thing towed for free because he had additional insurance. Even though it was going all the way back to Coquitlam, it wasn't going to cost him a penny. Uh, he owned a couple condo units. And they had some water issues. Not a problem because he had insurance. It was covered. And he said, I always tell everyone, man, over-insure, over-insure. And he was giving me his kind of philosophy on life and how this works, insure, insure, insure. So by the time we got to the end of the conversation, I'm like, going, huh, I haven't gotten too far with this guy. Um, I picked up a little bit that once upon a time, he lived in Abbotsford at the time, that he'd gone to a Christian church but been way in the past. So I thought I'll take a run at this. And I said, you know, you and I actually share a value. See, I'm, I'm in insurance as well. I said, see, the difference is you're really focused on making sure that everything here on earth is insured and I have spent my life trying to help people make sure they have insurance for what comes once you leave earth. And he looked at me and goes, oh, that's good. Uh, that's good. <laughs> We're talking on two different wavelengths. So let's look at this dialogue between Jesus and the woman. Zoe life versus bios. Um, if you knew the gift of God, right, I'd give you living water. That's Zoe. She comes back with, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, right? Well, that's bios. Jesus comes back with zoe life again. Whoever, everyone who drinks this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst, right? It's, it's going to be a spring of water welling up to eternal life. She comes back with, sir, give me this water, and then I don't have to come back here. <laughs> ah, they're missing, right? It's not a, how would we rate Jesus so far on his evangelism strategy? C plus? Don't want to get struck by lightning. Okay, so Jesus is on a missions trip, but they're missing. He's trying to get her to think spiritually. She keeps thinking literally. She doesn't realize who he is and what he's offering. So Jesus has to change his strategy a little bit. I believe that he now is going to reveal to her who he is. And so verse 16 starts that. Go call your husband and come back. Really? You're going to go there, Jesus? Rub a little salt in the wound, poke the bear? Is this aggressive evangelism strategy 101? Find the person's biggest ache in their life and go for it. I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right. You've had five and the one they were with now, he's not your husband. Sir, I can see you're a prophet. Why does Jesus bring up the husband issue? At first glance, it can seem insensitive. I think there's two things we can deduce from this. One, he's helping her understand who he is. You see, she can't deny, oh, you're someone different than I thought. There's no way you could have known that about me. No chance. You must be someone either spiritual, like 
prophetic or a prophet. Are you a prophet? Are you the prophet? She would know of the prophet, the promise that there would be one who comes like Moses, the prophet, and he would be the Messiah and he would share all God's truth with us. So she's aware of that and she begins to wonder. So now all of a sudden she's on to who he is. And the second thing that that I see here from this passage as to why Jesus would bring up the husband issue is he's trying to say to her, I know who you are and what I offer you, I offer to you knowing you. You see, she could have gone away from that experience and if the husband issue had never come up, she might have grasped the living water part and then thought to herself, yeah, but he would have never have offered it to me if he really knew who I was. Jesus is trying to say to her, I know who you are and my offer stands. You know, I've had to just, this hit me in a fresh way. I know who you are and my offer stands. We talk a lot about the gospel and the good news and the grace of God. We talk about the fact it's unmerited favor. We talk about the fact that it's nothing I have done. We talk about the fact it's based everything on Jesus Christ. We talk about the fact we're adopted into God's family. And yet we live differently. We live feeling shame and guilt rather than understanding that our sins are forgiven and that we don't deserve this and God has freed us from it. I attended a theological presentation this last week on adoption. It was at our seminary out in Langley called Northwest Baptist Seminary, uh, of which Archie Spencer is a part of and Joel Koretko, um, Dr. Archie and Dr. Joel, no Dr. Rod. Um, Archie was hosting it, and Dr. Archie Spencer was hosting it, and it was our new president of the seminary, Barton Preeb, who's also a doctor, meaning he um, did his doctoral dissertation in the area of understanding what does it mean to be adopted into God's family. And so he took us through his own kind of experience with this and his own understanding, which ended up leading him and his wife to adopt a child. They had three children already and adopted another one. And, um, and then he got into um, kind of his own personal experience with understanding the beauty of that concept. Understand this. And he said, you know, how come I've lived my entire Christian life being more defined more acutely aware of my failure, my sin, the way I don't measure up, and I haven't been defined more by this fact that God's love for me is unconditional, that there was nothing I did that caused God to choose me, but rather he willfully, before the foundations of the earth were created, chose me in Christ, brought me into his family. And he said, how different our lives would be if we would live out of that kind of thinking. It's much the language of Paul's uh, preaching on identity with Jesus and that we're one with Christ. And I get this struggle because I often wonder why it feels like failure and sin hang on us like a dirty old garment. And yet the truth of Christ's forgiveness and freedom has released us from that. And why is it that sin seems to linger? You know, I know you rod and my offer still stands and he says it to each and every one of us only you know who you truly are and he says to you i truly know who you are and i offer you living water it's a beautiful picture of salvation drink of me now my intentions today are not to go through this story um in detail because there's way too much in here. So a big piece is this whole worshiping God in spirit and truth. And I don't have time to unpack that here today. It's, it's not right at the center of my message. But just know this. It's not a disassociated thought from what 
Jesus has just been teaching this woman about herself. Often it's commonly thought that the woman does like a, a sharp left-hand turn. Ooh, you're getting a little too close here talking about my husband problem issue. Um, worship happens where? Here on this mountain in Samaria or there? You Jews say there, we say here, who's right? It's not that she switches gears into a theological argument at this point. But rather what she's doing is she's realizing I've just encountered a prophet. This prophet has revealed to me my heart and my situation. He's not condemned me. I need to do something with this. And what's the next right thing to do is to worship God. I need to go worship, but where is that right place of worship? And Jesus clears the air. He says, you know what? Um, It was in Jerusalem, but it's not anymore. There is a time coming, and it has now come that you will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And so what he's saying to her is, you can worship God wherever you go. You are free. Your heart has been released. The shame and the guilt and the sin of whatever your experience has been with these men in your life that have created all this hurt and pain, it's gone. You now can worship God wherever you go. Yes, we gather in this place, but you worship God all week long. You worship God with the totality of your life. And he's freeing her to understand that she now worships in spirit and in truth. And you know, she's getting the truth part right. She's getting the truth part right because she knows her need. She's getting the spirit part in the fact that she knows she's freed from it. Then, leaving her jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Does that strike you as unusual? Is that, is that normal human response? Let's just run back to the people who know my sordid past and just tell them, come and see the one who told me everything that I've ever done wrong. That's typically not a point of celebration, right? It's usually something we try to hide and be ashamed of. And she's not ashamed. She doesn't need to hide it. I've been freed from it. You all know every way. Anyways, probably is what she's thinking. Let me tell you, I found the one. Could he be the Messiah? Because he offered me living water. And he knows me. He knows me. Here's how the story ends. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him, this is Jesus, to stay with them, and he stayed two days. Uh, that's pretty amazing. He stayed two days in Samaritan, someone's house, and the disciples were with him. I'm sure this was stretching them. They urged him to stay, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. There's the mission trip completed. And I want to end with this. There's two groups of people I have in mind here this morning that I think need to apply this story. I've already referenced the one. It's those of us who know who Jesus Christ is, and need to know that his offer still stands. That we need to be thinking about this more deeply and allow that to resonate into our hearts and lives, that we live out of that truth rather than the lie. The second group of people are people who maybe have been wondering about who Jesus is but have not accepted what he offers. You need to accept what Jesus offers. You can't sit on the fence for your entire life and just wonder forever It comes a point where you need to make a decision and simply trust him. There's a verse in John 3, 36 that says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. You must receive or reject Jesus. He's done it all. 
You don't have to do anything except receive Jesus. There was a man who was connected to our church. Um, his wife attended here. He was older and <clears throat> got sick and was becoming chronic in his sickness and approaching death. He was in the hospital for an extended period of time, not a follower of Christ. His heart, he seemed to be kind of a tough on the outside, but more softer and reflective in the, on the inside. You know that kind of typical thing, right? Kind of a hard guy to approach. I'd visit him a couple of times while he was in the hospital, and each time we were there, he always had three other people in the room, and there's only this thin little curtain that divides you, so you have no privacy. I, I couldn't really explore his faith, and I knew that the end was coming soon, and he did too. So on my way this one day, I prayed and said, God, I need a moment. You know how hard it is to try to talk about spiritual things with a person who doesn't want to talk about it in the first place, and there's other people in the room. I need a moment. I got to his room, and to my surprise, no one was there. All three of the other beds were empty. No nurses around. I knew that I had my moment, but I also had to act quickly. I approached his bedside and I explained to him my intentions for the day. I wasn't there to shoot the breeze. I wasn't going to talk the Canucks, politics, or his family. I was there to ask him if he would be willing for me to share with him the gospel. He nodded his head quietly, yes. So I did. I did my best in short form to present the thumbnail sketch of our creation by God, our fall into sin, and the way in which we live that out. <clears throat> and what Jesus Christ came to do to redeem us, to buy us back. So I looked at him and I said, do you know <clears throat> your own need for Christ? Do you know that you're a sinner and you need to have your sins forgiven? And he looked at me and he said, that is one point you won't need to convince me of. Knowing that he had a clear understanding of his need for Christ, I then offered to him what God offers. Whoever, whoever trusts, whoever believes, whoever puts their faith in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life, I asked them. Is that what you want to do today? He looked over at me and he said, Is it true? Is it really as you say it is? And I replied to him, I said, The Bible tells us that God's plan for us and God's plan for salvation is that Jesus has done it all. And it's a simple act of your will, of your faith, to look to him and say yes to him or no. He offers you that. You can receive or reject him. Yes, it's true. With that, he reached out his hand and he shook mine. He said, then I accept. I asked if he'd like to pray. Couldn't pray. I said, would you like me to pray for you? That would be good. So I prayed for him. At the close of the prayer, I took one more little run at the wanting to make sure that he had actually believed in Christ kind of a situation. And he looked at me with almost a stare that said, how dare you ask? He said, if it, if it is as you said, then it's done. You don't need to ask me that again. We had our moment. God had spoken. He had offered to this man his salvation based on the work of Jesus Christ, and he accepted it. If it is as he say, then it's done. Jesus said to the woman of the well, I've got a gift, a gift from God. I want to give it to you. It's living water. Whoever drinks this water will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What will you do with Jesus' offer? My blessing for you, our doxology, our benediction, I mean, today, is just to simply go in the peace and the grace of Jesus Christ, knowing that the offer of living water that he gives to you, he does knowing you full well. Go with God's peace. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship sermon podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.